Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, this is Scott Pollard, and you are listening to The Jake Brown Show. Get at it. And welcome to the Jake Brown Show Radio.com, iTunes, and Spotify is where you find us. Follow us on social media at Jake Brown Show. Follow me at Jake Brown Radio. Joining us now is a guy who hosts a podcast who is about eight inches taller than me um, at 6'11. He's probably got 30 pounds on me. I'm 245. Uh, so depending on how many he's packed on since his career ended in 2008 with the Celtics. He hosts Planet Pollard. You can get it on SoundCloud and iTunes, and you can follow him on Twitter at ScottPollard31 with one T. Uh, Former NBA big man Scott Pollard on the line. Uh, Scott, what's going on, man? What's up, Jake? And I I have more than 40 pounds on you. Oh, so are you up to 300 now? I actually was up to 325 at one point. Um, I was lifting a lot of weight Mm. post-career. And then I went to the doctor, and he was like, yeah, no, no more of that. <laughs> so uh, I dropped a bunch of weight, and then I gained some back, and then I went on the TV show Survivor, and I lost 46 pounds and in 28 days. And that got me back down to playing weight. I was down to 266. And uh, then I got home, and my wife started cooking for me again. And she's, a, <laughs> not, she's not a good cook. She's a ridiculous cook. So I'm back up over 300, but I'm, I'm actually on my way back down. I've lost, lost 10 pounds this month. Uh, and and I'm on my way back down to two, hopefully 270 by September. So you, how many pounds on Survivor did you say you lost? 46. 46 in a four-week stretch. That is unbelievable. Um, but I'm sure almost no food. Uh, so I'm sure you gladly took your wife's cooking as soon as you got home. What was she cooking up that got you over 300? She makes everything from scratch, but uh, my 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 return home from Survivor was was my favorite meal in the whole world: steak and mashed potatoes and and uh, some good red wine. Uh, we celebrated mm. the getting home and uh, kept it a secret the whole time. She didn't know uh, how long I lasted in the show and and how far I went and all that kind of stuff until the day I the episode that I got voted out. So, but um, you know she she's half Thai from Thailand. Her mom's from Thailand and her dad is, is Italian. So she's got two food-pushing cultures pushing down on her genetically. And mm. she it's her joy. Her joy is to get in the kitchen and, and whip something up and feed the people she loves. And so uh, there, it ranges from ridiculously natural and, and tasty Thai food, which we've been to Thailand a bunch of times, and she's got the legit you know, recipes from that side of the family. And then she's got the mafia meatballs, I call them, <laughs> uh, that are passed down from her Italian side. Uh, that take a day and a half to make just the meatballs for it. So uh, the, there's both sides of, of, of her heritage that are, are just ridiculous, wonderful recipes that she's had, been handed down and learned uh, from her mother and from her relatives. And, and I'm the beneficiary, and my kids are the beneficiary of all the, this deliciousness. I would hope that as she, your mo- as she cooks like my mother, Mama Brown cooks some incredible chicken parm. There's got to be chicken parm. Well, there's she does. Um, 
she does it without the chicken. She just makes Parmesan, mm. uh, and then she'll make these big manicottis. And I don't know if it's even called Parmesan without the chicken, but um, she puts these big manicottis together, and, and uh, with she makes the cheese insert. And it, I don't even know how she does it all. She she uh, she teaches the kids when they want to get in there with her, and she'll pass along the knowledge. But she doesn't even go off her recipes really. It's just off her mind, and then she has people taste it and go, "What does it need? What does it need?" And so. Uh, very traditional style of cooking. She just experiments, and, and it's always from scratch, and it's always healthy and delicious. Shout out to all the mothers and the wives out there and everyone. Uh, our first show since Valentine's Day, so we got to shout them all out. Thanks for the incredible dinners and, and everything else that you do do for us. Scott Pollard joining us here on the Jake Brown Show. Um, do you hate Tim Donahue? No. <laughs> He's not. He's not the only one, and and never was the only one, and never will be the only one. There's there's bad apples in every profession, and uh, you know he. A common misnomer is that he was refing that game in Game Six, if that's what you're referring to, in the 2002 Western Conference Finals. Mm-hmm. Um, he just he just said it was dirty. He did He wasn't even there, uh, so I, he really had nothing to do with it. And who knows if he's telling the truth? Maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. But uh, I, I don't hate the man. Uh, I know that referees are human, uh, just like all of us. Everybody makes mistakes, and, and uh, he, he just saw an angle and, and tried to take advantage of it and go around the lines, and that was illegal. Uh, I don't respect him. <laughs> exactly. You know, he, yeah. you know that's different. But uh, do I hate him? No. I, he, he tried to run a game uh, on his job and, and got caught. Yeah, and I, I guess hate isn't the right word, but, I mean, you guys were so damn close uh, to topping the Lakers in that series. Obviously, it went seven games and uh, could have ended the Lakers' reign there. So I imagine some of those guys, after hearing about it, are just thinking to themselves, damn, like we were so close. That team was so memorable uh, with you and Vladdy Weber and Evan Bibby and all them and Doug Christie. And um, it is one guy's lunatic act as a ref that uh, might have cost you guys. Well, again, he, he didn't ref that game six and – and even if that game six, let's say he was correct when he said many months or was it a year or two later when he got caught that that he pointed out to that game specifically that he knew it was fixed. Let's let's just say for for sake's sake that that is accurate. Let's say that game was fixed. We still had game seven. Mm-hmm. We earned home court advantage throughout the season. We were the best team in the league. We had the best record in the league. We had home court advantage against the Lakers. That's why you play seven games. That's why you work for home court advantage so that you get the seventh game at home if it's necessary. And in game seven, we crapped the bed. There's nobody to blame but our team. So um, whether you could call it us being mentally shaken to the core that we should have closed them out in five games or six games and didn't, and, and but whatever it was, we didn't recover. Mm-hmm. Whether it was mentally, physically, or emotionally, we didn't recover and take care of business in game seven in front of our own crowd. We should have. And and so for everybody that says, oh, man, you guys got robbed, I say, well, we still had game seven. Nobody nobody thought game seven was big. We just couldn't make a shot. We didn't make we didn't play well. I personally, sadly enough, had a pretty good game uh, and didn't play much in the fourth quarter. But, you know, for, for me in the playoffs, that was a pretty good game for me. Uh, but then, you know, we've down the stretch. We're looking for some three-point shots, and we just couldn't knock one in. And I'm not calling out the guards or the forwards or anybody. But as a team, we craft a bed in game seven. So that's how it's easy for me to let go of, 
of any blame on the referees or game six or game four or whatever it was. It's a seven-game series. We had home court advantage, and no, not one person can say game seven was fixed. And we, we, went, we went home, and we crapped the bed, and then we stayed home. And the Lakers went on to win the championship that year. Yeah, and uh, obviously the Robert Ory shot had a big part of that series as well. I mean, just an, an incredible bounce to even get to him, and he gets it off just in time. That's always a moment we'll forget in the NBA on NBC days uh, back in the day. Scott Power joining us. Follow him on Twitter at ScottPower31. Um, ending your career with the Celtics, I mean, it must have been so bittersweet for you. It, it, I feel like when a guy retires after winning a title, it is just the cream of the crop, the top of the mountain, uh, just one of the most iconic moments in a professional sports career to end it with a ring. Did you feel the same way? Yes and no. Um, I, my goal when I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to play in the NBA. And then I, when it got to be realistic, I was like, all right, I'm going to play 10 years. And uh, after 10 years, I'd been to the Western Conference Finals. I'd been to the Eastern Conference Finals with the Pacers, the Cavaliers, and went to the NBA Finals with the Cavaliers. And then um, I, I was that was my 10th year. And I was like, all right, you know what? I, I've, I've gotten so close on so many teams dating back to high school. In high school, my team was supposed to win state. And then in college was Kansas, and we had a good chance to win it all probably two of my four years. And then, as I mentioned, my NBA career. So I've been on a lot of successful teams, and I just felt like, you know what, I'm never going to win a championship. I tried and tried and tried, and I was part of some wonderful teams and have some great memories, but I'm good. And then Boston called and said, hey, come help us win a championship. And I said, well, uh, I realized that I'm a bargain, and you need a bargain because you spent all your money on the big three, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I went out there, and I got hurt the mm-hmm. first day playing pickup games, and we were kind of doing some – you know, running through some drills to prepare for the season, and I sprained my ankle, as I did a lot, and I just played through it. But it turned out it was worse than I thought it was, and it was something I tried to play with through training camp, and they wouldn't let me, even though they let me go to Rome with the team. Uh, then they end up sending me home from that trip because it swelled up so bad. I had an MRI when I got back from Rome, and they said, look, you're going to get surgery. It's either now, and you're out for four months, and you hopefully come back and finish the season with us, or you try to play through the season, and then you're getting surgery at the end of the season. And I said, well, this is a championship run. I'm going to go for it. So I played hurt the entire season, and then in February, my ankle actually gave out. I was playing against Shaquille O'Neal in Phoenix, Hmm. and I turned to run, and it popped, and I was like, well, I'm done. But I was starting the next night because Kendrick Perkins was out. So we were in Portland the next night, and I faked it through warm-ups and jumped off the wrong foot and told them everything was fine and didn't hurt at all. And actually, it didn't hurt that bad. And then uh, Doc Rivers pulled me out of the game. It's a long story, but Doc pulled me out of the game. He's like, you can't jump. I was like, I never could, Doc. He goes, no, there's something wrong. You're, you're done. And then they sent me home, and yeah, they confirmed it. So long to that question, yes, it was awesome to finally get a ring, having been on all those teams that shoulda, coulda, woulda. But it was bittersweet because I ended that season injured and watching from the bench. And P.J. Mm-hmm. Brown came in and uh, was awesome for the Celtics and, and took my spot, you know, basically, which we needed him to, and and helped the team win it, uh, helped the team start it. So, uh, I, you know, people say, oh, you ended that season, you weren't even on the team and all that kind of stuff. You know, that there's a valid, validity to that. If you just Google what happened, you would never know that backstory. But the true story is I helped get that team there uh, in my way, and I was, you know, off, off the court helping out with, 
you know, counseling some of the younger guys and trying to be a leader off the off the bench. And um, uh, it's it, that ring I still wear, and I wear it just as much for every other team I was on that it could have, would have, should have, dating back to high school, uh, as I do for the Celtics. Yeah, and I, I, why wouldn't you? I mean, it's it's tremendous. And I think the off-the-court aspect is overlooked in a lot of spots. You were uh, mentoring a lot of those younger guys, and I think that's essential in the game today. And it's why we, we see these teams that always make it every year have veterans like you. Um, so I think that is an important role. Um, so it is unfortunate how it ended, but I, I didn't know that backstory. So that's interesting that you were playing her. And, and a lot of times today, Scott, you would see the total opposite. As soon as a guy's ankle hurts, they're out of the game. And, and some people will say, oh, some of these guys are, are pussies. But it's, it's a lot different uh, from when you played in the hard-nosed era of basketball and hard fouls that we don't see in today's game. And everything's changed over the years. Well, and, and with the amount of money and medical staff that's involved nowadays and the training that's involved nowadays, um, they're paying a lot more attention before they become major injuries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if I played in these days, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's no way I would have sprained my ankle and they would have been like, okay, yeah, go ahead. If you, if you feel like you can play, go ahead. They wouldn't have helped me out. And they would have waited until that thing was healed. And if I had had an MRI that showed what I had, and I'm not placing Boston under any blame at all. It's just the time and the, and the place. Mm -hmm. And I was pushing to play. You know, when it when it when it's the actual player going, uh, no, I don't care what you say. I'm going to go for it. You know, they gave me the option. But I think in now in today's NBA, the, the culture and the climate is different with these contract guys that are that were like me. You know, that are like me in my day. You know, some of them are making seventy-five, eighty million dollar contract, hundred million dollar contracts. That's a lot of money to invest in somebody that's just going to be bullheaded like me and just try to go out there and play hurt. You're going to think, hey, wait a minute. We, we may miss a season with him if we pull, hold him out, but in the long term, we're going to get our money's worth if this kid comes back healthy or this man comes back healthy as opposed to, well, let's just let him ride, you know, mm -hmm. and let him play hurt. So I, I think it's both better staff, better training, uh, better technology, better doctors, but also – I think it's also that there's a there's a bigger financial aspect in that and the business side of things where they go, hey, uh, we better not let this guy play hurt, and then all of a sudden he's out maybe forever, which is my case. I was done forever. I had both my ankles rebuilt because they, they did my left one, and I said, well, you know what, Doc, my right one's the one that always hurts. And they MRI'd my right one, and it was exactly the same. It just hadn't popped yet all the way. It was torn up, and there was no cartilage and whatever. You know, They rebuilt them both, and I could have kept playing. I still had got called that summer. Because other teams were like, hey, you know, if you can come back and pass physical, we want you because we know you're a great guy in the locker room. We know you're a bargain. It's better in minimum. And, and, and at that point, I was kind of tempted because I thought, you know what, I could, I could milk a few more years out of it. But then, you know, my body was just going, come on, stop it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, well, you, you retired at, at, what, 33, right? Mm-hmm. Do you – is that – were you comfortable at that age retiring? I mean, you played – uh, a dozen years or so. Are you comfortable with 33 saying, you know what, I think it's time now? Well, uh, yes, because I was uh, I was straddling the fence of being a good professional athlete and a good parent and father. Uh, at the time, I had two daughters, and, and I was married to my first wife, and, and I wasn't being a very good family guy because I was gone all the time and, and trying to, to be a professional athlete. And then I was leaving practices, you know, I wasn't leaving practice early, but I wasn't working out as long as I was earlier in my career. I wasn't dedicating myself to 
being there as early, like it used to be I'd go to practice an hour and a half early and get my own stuff done and then start working with the team before or the staff before to get ready. And then after practice, I would do the same. And so instead of spending six or seven hours a day at the gym, I was spending four or five hours a day at the gym. And that, if, if any professional athlete is honest with you, can that's the difference between being a good professional athlete and, a, and an actual pro and being somebody that's just punching the clock and like, eh, you know, because I played with guys that showed up for practice and left. And mm-hmm. those guys didn't have very long careers. you got to put in the hours just like any other profession. So at that point in my career, I was thinking, you know what, I've got enough money to retire. I don't have to work anymore. And I'd rather be a better family man than try to be half of both. And I- uh, so I decided to do that. And it, it backfired. I got divorced. <laughs> so uh, for as far as the husband part, it didn't work out too well for that one. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, I've, I've got four kids now, and I've got my – I had a third with my uh, – actually with my wife, um, my first wife. I had a third in Boston. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I got divorced a few years later and got remarried four years ago and had a baby with my current wife, and and we're doing great. And, and so, uh, you know, I don't have nearly the money I used to have, but – my ex-wife does, and my kids are well taken care of as a result. So that's the important part. We live here in Indiana. We split custody 50-50, and uh, that's why the kids get to see both parents a lot, and they come back and forth all the time every week. And so uh, I think that my money was well spent. I didn't blow it. <laughs> and, and now you're getting first-class meals every night, which is important as well. Uh, Scott Parr joining us. Can, can you take us through, Scott? Going up against Shaq, it's like it seems like you followed him or he followed you. I mean, you were the Kings ninety nine oh three. He was with the Lakers. You go to the Pacers oh three to oh six, oh four. He goes to the Heat, so he ends up being in the same conference again. And then uh, he ends with the Suns, and, and you were in the Celtics. But what was it like going up against Shaq? Well, he actually he played for Cleveland too, so he did kind of follow me. He yep. went he went Cleveland, then Boston, then uh, you know so. I played against him in his prime. Uh, early in his career, he wasn't as heavy uh, and, and as, as skilled. He was just strong and athletic. And then in his prime, the years when he was with the Lakers, he was so quick, so athletic, so skilled, and he knew where people were. And, he, and so in his prime, I mean, I, for some reason, I got the nickname the Shaq Stopper, and I think teams kind of build my value based on my ability to frustrate Shaq a little bit, but never once did I stop the man, and no one did. Uh, I could slow him down at times, but I give as much credit to Vlade Divac, completely different style of guarding him that created my success in guarding him because it gave Shaq two different complete looks. So he's got to worry about flopping with, with Vlade and Vlade being such a, a crafty defender and swiping at the ball or knocking out of his hands when he's dribbling or whatever because Vlade was so quick with his feet and his hands. And then I'd come in and just bang with him and just go right back at him with his physicality as best I could. And so it kept him guessing. It was a very different look that made him adjust. I think that's why we had such, such success against him was because of the varying ways we threw defense at him. But, uh, you know, the man, <laughs> there'd be games where I thought I did a good job and I look at the box score afterwards and he's got 35, 20, and six block shots, you know, <laughs> and seven assists. You know, and then there's games where I thought I did a terrible job and he's, you know, 18 and, and 15 and 
for, you know? So it's, you, you, you never stop the man. Uh, when, when you play against superstars, Tim Duncan was like that, you know, you'd have games where you felt like you did a good job and, and they still get their numbers. They still dominate. And that's the difference between the hall of famers and, and the rest of us and is the people that can just absolutely get it done. Yeah, I mean, if you covered him in today's game, if you covered Shaq, you might foul out every game, it seems like, the way they're calling fouls. Well, and, and you know, if you look at uh, history, and I'll go way back. I'll go to I'll go to Will Chamberlain on you. Mm-hmm. And you watch the video of Will Chamberlain. If he ever did anything the way Shaq did, Wilt would have fouled out of every game mm-hmm. because he wasn't allowed. you weren't allowed as an offensive player to dislodge any defender ever. It was always a charge, the way they called the game. And I've seen the footage, so there's no arguing it. I didn't realize that, but I've seen the footage of Wilt just barely tapping somebody with his back to the basket. And so Wilt had to develop even more of his ridiculous athleticism to get around players and to not dislodge defenders because it was always an offensive foul. So – yeah, if you think about how the game is different, it, it always evolves. It's, I've never, ever said one era is better than the other. Basketball is jazz music. It always and it always will change depending on the dominant players. So the dominant players today are evolving the game in front of our eyes, and it's different than when I played even 10 years ago. It's way different. But it doesn't mean it's better or worse. It's just different. The skills of these players are evolving the game. And when there's another dominant player like a Shaquille O'Neal, if there becomes one soon, that just goes, you know what? I'm going to bust the system. I'm not going to go out there and shoot threes. I'm going to go inside and make somebody stop me. Well, then you're going to see the resurgence, possibly, of more big men getting back into the league with their back to the basket, or at least guys like me have to deal with guys like uh, if there's another Shaquille O'Neal type player that comes down the line. And that's beauty of basketball there's there's no right or wrong it just goes on and and keeps on evolving and morphing just like jazz music don't you kind of miss the post-up game we're seeing like every center now like demarcus cousins uh shooting three-pointers at will and we're just not seeing guys dominate the post like we used to again what i just said uh is that the game is different and it's because the players skills are different Mm -hmm. but also you know people ask me like well you know, they'd see me play in the summer league, and they're like, why don't you do that? Like, I didn't realize you could do that, you know, because I'm playing pickup games. I'm shooting three-pointers, or I'm I'm dribbling up the court and passing to people. And they're like, why don't you do that in the NBA? And I'm going, well, because I'm playing with Jason Williams, or I'm playing with Mike Bibby, or I'm playing with Reggie Miller. Why would I shoot a three when I can knock Reggie Miller's guy down and make him shoot a three? And if he happens to miss, I get an offensive rebound and a bucket. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm best at. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's some – parts of me that I look at DeMarcus Cousins specifically since you mentioned him, I sit there and I go, why wouldn't that man sit in the paint and dominate every single night and not even worry about trying to work on a three-point shot? But he has the talent to. So who am I to say, hey, man, don't shoot threes just because you can. I mean, he can. Yeah. If he was out there shooting 14% from the three-point line, I'd say, hey, man, get your ass in the post and, and take care of business. But he can knock them down. So who, who's what coach in the world is not going to take advantage of somebody that is my size, six eleven and two seventy, and, and can also shoot threes? So again, it it maybe I should have shot the ball more. Maybe I would have been one of those guys like Vladi and Chris because I think Vladi and Chris kind of started that look. Our our Sacramento Kings, I think the Golden State Warriors era of now had its beginnings in the Sacramento Kings in the early two thousands because you had bigs that shot threes, you had bigs that brought the ball up, you had 
everybody sharing the ball, and it didn't matter who scored as long as we won. And so that style of basketball was us, I think. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but somebody brought it up to me a couple weeks ago, and I thought, you know what, they're probably right. I mean, we do we did play the way the Warriors play now, but we played it 15 years ago, 17 years ago. And I think back then the, the pick and pop was my thing. Like when you pick and get it to Weber, get a Vladdy, or Kurt Thomas was the king of the – the mid-range. I'm a Knicks fan, so he was the king of the mid-range jumper off the pick and pop, something we don't see in today's game. And I hear what you're saying about Cousin, but sometimes the guy, Scott, just becomes a point guard and just starts trucking guys. It's like, do that, except post up, and you'll score more points. Like, there's no need for you to to take the point guard's job um, because you could think you could do it all, and he could, but sometimes these guys just get out of control. So I, I, I do miss that aspect. I know the game has changed. Um, who knows? Maybe we'll have a guy come out of college and, and bring back that post-up game. Uh, but it was it's just the NBA and NBC day, Scott, as you know, were, were classics. And, and those clashes, you you guys in the Lakers and, and uh, the Heat and the Knicks and, and those playoff series, are something that that we really miss, and now it's kind of like it's it's Warriors Cavs, and that's that's the thing we're searching for. Well, and and I don't disagree with that because if I did have one critique of the game today, and again, it, it's not better or worse, but if I did have one critique of the game today, is kind of what you're getting at is there's not much of a differentiation between positions now, mm-hmm. and everybody thinks they can just do everything, can't do everything. Some players can, but very few players can do everything but everybody thinks they can do everything. And so then you do have a lot of guys that play out of position, even though they know dang well they're not capable of it, and they're trying to bring the ball up, or they're trying to post up, or they're trying to shoot threes. And, and, you know, I do dislike that because it does cheapen the game a little bit. But, yes, if I had a, a choice, I would say I would prefer that you got big guys running down there and, and posting up and doing some sweet moves in the post because it differentiates people. Then you're all of a sudden you're like, hey, man, that guy's in there getting it done in the post. Or that guy knows how to set a screen and get out and pick and pop to the 17-foot range or the 15-foot range. I loved guarding Kurt Thomas. It was one, he was one of the, my favorite guys to guard because we were such similar size uh, and, and not athletic ability. He was much more talented than I am. But, you know, we just – we had a little bit of a rapport, even though we didn't see each other a whole lot in the Eastern Conference, I was in the Western Conference. But when we did play against each other, it was always a fun battle for me because there were similarities there. I could kind of keep up with him and, and uh, you know, mock, knock him around a little bit. But then, you know, I took portions of his game because I was sitting there going, well, shoot, if he's picking and popping, I think I can incorporate that. And I would try to do it again. But then I would also divert to what I mentioned earlier about, hey, I'm going to try to get Pages to Akovic. I'm not going to sit here and try to take three-pointers or 17-footers when Page is right there on the wing, and I can go knock this guy down and get an offensive rebound if he happens to miss. Otherwise, I get an assist. Either way, it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Scott Power joining us for another minute or two here on the Jake Brown Show. Do you like Joel Embiid? I mean, you're a guy who's who's pretty funny on Twitter. He's funny on Twitter. Uh, he's a big man. You're a big man. What do you think of Joel Embiid and his game on and off the court? I don't follow him on Twitter, but I have seen some of his, his better tweets, and he is he is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think that more players need to have that type of attitude where it's kind of like they can laugh at themselves a little bit, but also they, they can laugh at other people because they can laugh at, at themselves. Uh, I, I do love that about him. His aura is that of somebody that gets it. He's, he's out there to work his butt off, 
but he's also out there to have some fun, and that was definitely how I, well, that's still how I approach life, you know? you got to work hard, you also play hard if you work hard. And so I do love that about his persona and the, and the tweets I've seen from him. But, you know, on the, on the court, I, I don't have a comparison for him other than he's just amazing. I mean, he's, he's one of those guys that could sit in the post and dominate if he wanted to, but, again, his skill set is so ridiculous and so he's so lengthy and athletic. Um, I would never compare anybody to Will Chamberlain, but he is a guy that can do – he can outrun people down the court like Will did. He can dunk over people. Uh, he's never going to be able to change the game the way Will changed the game because, well, Will's the free. But, you know, uh, Joel has the ability to be one of the all-time greats, and I hope, he, I hope his body keeps up for him because – um, you know, obviously, we all know he had a rough start to his career with his injuries, but if his body can keep up, um, he does have the talent, and I think the drive and the mindset to be one of the all-time greats in the game. And so, I'm cheering for him. I know he was only in Kansas for a short time, but he, you know, we're both Jayhawks, so it's a family, and I'm I'm cheering him on for sure. That's right. I forgot about the Jayhawks aspect of that. Uh, last one, your former team, the Cavs, made a couple moves at the deadline. Everyone thinks they're back. I think they're back. Uh, do you like them to win the East? <laughs> as a as a default, yeah. I mean, how many years in a row do we do we say, oh, the East is on its way back, the East is on its way back, and then it's just, <laughs> it, I mean, ever since the the Jordan era, there hasn't really been a team that has decided to go. We're going to make a dynasty now. Miami was good for a while, but now they were in the dumper for so long before that, and so long after that, and the the Knicks have never come back from the 90s and it's just it's yeah boston might get them uh but if cleveland pulls their locker room issues together which you know probably they got rid of guys that were the problem anyway uh but to me if the Cavs seem more like a dumpster fire where they're gonna they're gonna try to keep it together and make a run but if their chemistry in the locker room, which seems to be terrible, unless it gets way better with these new personalities in there, um, you know, I think the Celtics do get them. And I, and, and I see that the Cavs are holding on by a strand, even with all the new additions. I, I think it comes down for them. Are, are the egos going to be tame enough to try to make to let the talent shine through? Or, or is it going to be LeBron's way or the highway, and people are going to bolt on him again, or, or you know, whatever whatever the problem is. Not pointing the finger at LeBron, but he's the best player in the world, so he kind of has to take that role. It is on LeBron, and he has to be the guy to calm the locker room down, and he has to be the guy that makes chemistry work. He has to be the guy that's going to make everybody listen to the coach if that's what's going to happen, or he's got to be the coach. One of the two. <laughs> so, <laughs> the Steve Kerr route. Uh, yeah, I mean. <laughs> Tyron Lue and I played against each other in college. I've known Tyron Tyron Lue for that long, and you know he's a great guy. But you know you look at the huddle sometimes, and he's just kind of standing there while LeBron's coaching. And that's kind of how it was when I was there with Mike Brown as the head coach. LeBron would come in the locker room and, and yell at guys or whatever, and then Mike would wait for him to finish, and then Mike would start coaching. Hmm. But you know, as far as this year. Yeah, I mean, who else in there is going to challenge in the Eastern Conference? It's not like they got the Spurs to deal with or a veteran team that's just gelled and, and is just playing consistent basketball. I mean, the Pacers, with that roster, and I'm not knocking their roster other than they don't have two superstars on it. They've got a bunch of role players mm-hmm. that are playing together like crazy. And they're look at their record. They're in, what, third or fourth place in the East, 
I, and I'm happy for them. And I live here, and I do a lot of stuff for the Pacers organization. And I, I love watching this team play. They have a great chemistry, and they are far exceeding even my own expectations. And they're fun to watch. But they don't have the talent to keep up with a real, like, legit playoff team. They don't. So, yeah. you know, they're but they're in fourth place or, or whatever mm-hmm. they are as teams right now. I, I mean, you can't sit there and say this is a great conference, that the, the Cavaliers have a legitimate somebody that's going to take them out unless it's the Celtics. Yeah, and I, I think what will be interesting is if Gordon Hayward does return for the playoffs, that makes things very interesting because I think the Celtics have a shot to take it to seven right now. But if they get Hayward back, I think that's what we all hope for. But then you got to worry about is the chemistry going to work with Hayward back? Yeah, you that's know? true. There are going to be enough touches for Kyrie, the flat guy, flat earth guy. I mean, <laughs> I, nobody knows what's going on in that guy's head. <laughs> I would tend to figure it out. But, you know, I, there, flat earth guy. As, as, as talented as he is, and. That's a scary proposition when you're ta- – and I'm talking about Hayward coming back. Mm-hmm. As talented as he is, they've never played together. It's true. And, and and that is a big risk when you're bringing in that much talent. If he comes back to the playoffs and all of a sudden it's like, well, there's another superstar just popping in to say hello and taking half my shots away or three-quarters of my – you know, a quarter of my shots away, how is that going to work in the locker room? How is that going to work in the offense? They've been playing without him all season long. Is it even going to work? Regardless of chemistry, is it going to work numbers-wise? You know, so it, it, yeah, the talent. You look at it and you go, "Wow, that'd be great to have that guy back all of a sudden." But then, when you really think about it, is it a positive to have that much talent, that many minutes taken away from other players that have been used to those minutes and used to those touches? Is it going to help? We don't know. It depends on egos. Yeah, that's very true. I didn't think of that aspect of it. Um, I forgot to ask you the last one, and then we'll let you run the. What happened with this this shot that you made from half court or half or halfway? Down, I don't know what to call it on the ice, um, at the midway point. Uh, you made the shot, and they, they, did, they center ice. Center ice. There we go. See, I'm not not a big hockey show here, um, but you made it from center ice. But they didn't give you the fifty thousand that was going to charity, uh, because the puck was sticking out or something. Yeah, so anyway, I didn't know it was called center ice. I struggled with it my own self on my own <laughs> podcast, trying to tell it. Like, I was saying half ice, like, what do they call it? So I finally figured out it's center ice, I believe. But, yeah, um, three of us shot. It was uh, it was a, a young man, and um, so they were like a, a young person, a celebrity, quote-unquote celebrity, and a super fan. And celebrity was supposed to be – Tony Stewart, I think, the race car driver, and huh. apparently he took sick, and so the called the Pacers, and the Pacers were in Phoenix, and the Pacers were like, hey, Scott lives there, he'll do anything. <laughs> so they called me over, and I went over there, I was like, I've never shot a puck in my life, and they had three little holes in this big board in front of the, the net, and if you hit it in one, it was like a, 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 a car they drove out on the ice, and if you hit it in this other one, there was another prize, and if you hit it in the middle one, it was $50,000 for the charity. And so I nailed it. And it went right in, and the crowd goes crazy, the announcer goes crazy, and all of a sudden they wave him over from center ice, and he goes scooting over, because none of us are wearing skates, and he goes scooting over, and he goes, everybody, I got some bad news. In in any charity, I don't know if you ever played charity golf tournaments when there's a hole-in-one prize, mm-hmm. yep. and, and this falls into that category. When there's something like that and there's a big cash prize on it, they get insurance for it. So they pay a premium to the insurance company, and the insurance company goes, okay, if this, this, and this happen." You know, then we'll pay out. But if all those things don't happen, the contract's no one's void, we're paying it. 
So apparently, and there's no camera, this is minor league hockey, uh, apparently part of the puck was sticking out, and it didn't, it didn't go all the way through. And so they were like, sorry, because, of, you know, there's insurance involved. We can't give the charity uh, the money. And, I, and so my response, and I said this on my own podcast, uh, my response to it was, if it was just a check to, to random person, like if I if it was for me and you got to pay me fifty thousand dollars, I kept the insurance. But when you're talking about charity, you get to write that off. If somebody wins that and you're donating fifty thousand dollars to a charity mm-hmm. as a business, they can write that off, and they're not paying the entire fifty thousand dollars. They get a tax credit the next year. So what level? You know, typically it's around fifty percent. But I'm not going to speak for their tax situation and their business. But Again, charity for me, I'd be like, why insure it? If it happens, we donate to charity, everybody wins. We get a good reputation, and we get to donate to charity as well and help out a, a, a battered people's shelter. Uh, but anyway, it didn't go that way. But you know what? It got a lot of notoriety for the Julian Center. That's the charity it was. And, and it's, a, it's a place here in Indiana that we, my wife and I toured. Both of us have had domestic issues in our previous uh, relationships with people that were violent. And, and that's what this is. It's a place for people to get out of their houses, uh, get out of their living court uh, situations and get to a safe place, get away from violent people. And it doesn't just shelter them for a while. It helps them get trained and get a job and get back on their feet, get their own place. Uh, and so that's why we, uh, I picked that charity to, to help win them money. And, and people saw it on Twitter. People saw it on social media and saw my response and my podcast. And, and so I've gotten a lot of notifications from the charity itself that a lot of people have stepped up and donated uh, because they thought I got screwed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you did. I mean, it's charity, and you're right. It's a write-off. Just give it to you. I mean, I'm, I looked at the video on Twitter, and I mean, it looks. I mean, it's a little far away, but it looks like it went in. Um, so that that was just frustrating. Oh man. Yeah. Oh well. Well, at least it got some notif- notification, and people donated, which is important. Yeah, and still, it was a, it was a fun thing, and the fuel have been great about it. The owners are great guys, uh, and you know, they're just at, at that point when when it's there the way it happened, it's out of their hands. You know, it's not like they can mm-hmm. change all of a sudden and just be like, hey, yeah, we're going to donate because the insurance company's not going to do it at that point, you know? So then they would just have to, and they could have, but I, I understand why they didn't. They had an insurance policy. And then, yeah. There's always yeah. next time. We'll get them next time. Scott Pollard, former NBA center. You could get the Planet Pollard podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can follow him on Twitter at Scott Pollard 31 Appreciate the time, man. Uh, have a great one, and uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jake. All right, man. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.